Welcome back to the Non-Believer Bible Club. Club. Reading the Bible as a non-believer has been a very interesting experience, and I'm happy to hear some of you are interested over the past three episodes. I've gotten comments ranging from, I've never thought about the Bible this way, to, man, wait till you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's going to be so damn boring. But I say bring it on. This is exactly what I'm here to do. The Non-Believer Bible Club, for me, is a journey of biblical proportions. I'm ready. You're ready. Let's get into it. We are coming up on the 10th chapter of Genesis, and already we've gotten a very strong impression of the nature of God. God in the Old Testament so far is anthropomorphized, as in he's walking through the garden when he talks to Adam. He's physically there, or she, or it, or huh? Additionally, God is emotional. We see God's wrath when he sends the flood to cleanse the earth. We see God's love when he first makes man. We also see God exhibit emotions that we don't traditionally think God would. He is sorrowful when he sees that the thoughts of man are only evil. He repenteth in his heart. He's like, where did I go wrong here? And in the end, he is able to reconcile with his creation. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. If there's anything that God reminds me of so far in his humanness, it's Zeus. Greek mythology. The Greeks were very honest about their gods being just as flawed and multifaceted as humans are. Although that's something that the Bible doesn't necessarily take into account, despite the paradoxical form of God as being unending, omnipotent. We can see that the characterization of God in the book of Genesis thus far has been less lofty and more human. So we have this stern, almost Zeus-like, patriarchal father character in God. This is just so fascinating to me psychologically because of what it says about how the writers are perceiving God or how they are conceptualizing and understanding what an omnipotent being is like. Let's take Genesis 9-2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. This is a very interesting statement because we see power as fear, as dread. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. But since this power is God-given, it goes both ways. Fear that the animals have of our power in turn reflects the fear we should have of God. His power is reflected through our fear, as man's power is reflected through the fear animals have. Oh no, humans are coming. I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but it does seem to speak psychologically of the way these writers comprehended the awesome power of God. What's more fascinating to me is the existence of these infinite trickle-downs. 
power of God, power of humans, power of the animals. They don't have that much, but it all comes from God in an infinite asymptotal kind of way. For those of you who skipped geometry, an asymptote is a function of a curve which infinitely approaches zero but never touches. Infinity never reaches its end, and infinity never has a beginning. We are all linked by our power over each other and our lack of power in the face of God. We are just another step in the infinite ladder of relation to the omnipotence and infiniteness of God. We have the phrase repeated, these are the generations. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. But we can't forget, the phrase starts at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. We may see a huge difference in the generations of men compared to the generations of the heavens. But to God, the heavens are as small or humanity is as big as anything that he's created. So on one hand, we have the more simple human fear of the power of God. And on the other hand, the sublime reminder that we are all generations of that which God has created. Interesting stuff to consider. Lastly, one of my favorite topics, the creeping things that creepeth. Creepeth. What are the creeping things? I uh, did some research. This is what I've discovered. According to BibleGateway.com, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever said that sentence. According to BibleGateway.com, the term creeping things comes from the Greek hermeton, literally in English, creeping animal. It is also where we get the term herpetology, which is the study of any ectothermic tetrapod, meaning amphibians and reptiles. I knew the creeping things were lizards, man. I just, I knew it. Lizards and geckos and frogs, they be creeping, man. I love them. So modern herpetology includes the study of amphibians and reptiles. To quote from BibleGateway.com, in the fossil record, reptiles and modern insects are first apparent in the same strata and mammals in subsequent layers. Because all of these were created on the sixth day, this may indicate long periods of time included in a single day of creation. So, going along with the idea that everything was created on the sixth day, and then day meaning really any period of time, they are recognizing, quote, It is sufficient to say that the particular insects mentioned in the Bible are grasshoppers, locusts, crickets, scale insects, moths, and butterflies, flies, fleas, bees, and ants. In addition to sponges, corals, mollusks, the Bible refers to sponges, corals, and mollusks? I can't wait to get to that. The Bible refers to vipers or adders, asps, asps, serpents, cockatrices among the poisonous reptiles, and chameleons. Chameleons? Oh, chameleons are creeping things too. Dude, the creeping family just gets bigger and bigger. Geckos, lizards, and tortoises. I love tortoises. Yes! You heard it here from the Nonbeliever Bible Club. Any of those animals are creeping things that creepeth. Whew. Okay, I got really spun up for that one. 
I go hard for the creeping things, man. However, we must press forward. Joineth me as we begin Genesis chapter 10, the generations of Noah. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog. I've, I hope these names don't end. So somebody told me that Deuteronomy was going to be so boring because of all the names. But I'm having the most fun with these names. Let's go. Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Mesech, Meshech, and Tiras, to throw away. <laughs> Tirar in Spanish is to throw away, so I don't know who's throwing away this guy. I guess Japheth. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rephath, and Togarmah, and the sons of Javan, Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanian, Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. The sons of Ham, and the sons of that bastard Ham, Cush, of no relation to the green herb, and Mizraim, and Foot, and Canaan, the aforementioned cursed Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah. Ah, named after the river, right? Yeah, okay. So Genesis 2, 10. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The first... The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah. Ah, Havilah is the land which Pison goes through, where there is gold. That bodes well, and the gold of that land is good. That bodes very well. There is Bdellium and the Onyx Stone. How cool would it be if I just kept reading in an infinite loop? Okay, back to chapter 10. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah and Sapta, and Ramah, and Sabteka, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Uh-oh. And Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Assur, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah. The same is a great city. Everybody following so far? All of these names will be on the test. Okay. And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphtorim, 
and Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. It's like Seth, but just the Heth. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgasite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. Okay, so this is about what I thought would happen, where they explain curse be Canaan, and then they start telling you he's the dad of all their neighbors. Awful convenient that the curse goes upon the Arvadites and the Zemarites and the Hamathites and the Canaanites next door. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, ooh, first mention, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. So Ham will father generations who will raise the cities of Babel, Sodom, and Gomorrah. If this doesn't ring a bell, it sure will later. The sons of Shem. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him children were born. Even Shem. The children of Shem, Elam, and Ashur, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz, Uzi, Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash. Mash! Mash is... <laughs> I can't... I cannot... These names are terrific. Yeah, just name my son Mash. Too bad he didn't uh, spend time with Ham. We almost have a full banquet. And our facts sad begat Salah. And Salah begot Eber. Ooh, Eber, second of his name. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. So, I'll diverge very briefly to talk about names in the Bible. If we remember, Adam coming from Adama, meaning earth. His name is also used as a pronoun for all of mankind, meaning we came from the earth. Eve, on the other hand, in Genesis 3.20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve in Hebrew is Hava, meaning living one source of life. So when he says that she is the mother of all living, it's not because it's the eve of all mankind. It's kind of cool how that works in English. But the reference is to the living part. So when I see a name like Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, I'm sure there's some meaning in the original biblical Hebrew that makes Peleg mean guy who was born during times when the earth is divided. Anyway, 1026. And Joktan begot Almodad and Shelef and Hazar Mavith. What a name. This is the best yet. Hazar Mavith. That is a hyphen. Hazar hyphen Mavith. Terrific. And Jerah and Hadoram. Hadoram and Uzo and Dikla 
and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, keeping the name in the family, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou goest unto Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth, after the flood. One language in the world. Oh, so we are already at Babel now. So remember in school when they tell you the parts of a book, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, the resolution, whatever. That for the Bible has to just be up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And then (laughs) straight flat when they have a bunch of names. Now we're at chapter 11. And the whole world was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. No, throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. Where'd they get that slime? There's just slime hanging around? And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Children of men, there you go, Alfonso Cuaron fans. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. (laughs) I like how God just repeated their go to. Like, now I'll go to. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Man, self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's not get scattered, so we'll build a tower to fuck heaven. God says, no, scatters them. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And that is just the beginning of the failures of the sons of Ham. But for now, the generations of Shem, the ancestor of Abram. Abram is a very important figure in this book. So important that his influence stretches across to two other religions. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all known as Abrahamic religions. But why, we will see. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was an hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Salah. 
and Arphaxed lived after he begat Salah 403 years and begat sons and daughters. Didn't we just do this? We're doing it again. Let's go. Round two. And Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. And Salah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg, my guy Leg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived thirty years and begat Reu, R E U. Sounds like a character from Final Fantasy. Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu two hundred and nine years and begat sons and daughters. And Ryu, Ryu lived two and thirty years, and begat Serug. And Ryu lived after he begat Serug two hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. And Serug, Serug, lived thirty years, and begat Nahor, <laughs> Nahor. And Serug lived after he begat Nahor two hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah an hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Hold on a second. Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Okay, so Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran dies. Nahor the second takes his dead brother's child as his wife. Okay, and unmentioned before, Haran also is the father of Iscah. Okay. But Sarai was barren. Back to Abram. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son. So, okay, Haran died. He left Lot and Milcah, whom Nahor married, Nahor II, <laughs> and another son, Iscah, mentioned after the fact. Okay, family tree's getting a little sloppy there. One Nahor too many. And Terah, Abram's dad, took Abram and Lot, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Haran the place, then. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah 
died in Haran. So they left behind Nahor. Wonder why. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will shew thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is huge. This is why Abram is looked on as the patriarch of three major religions. We're getting a direct promise from God to him. Abram will be the father of a great nation. Another thing to note, sometimes I exclude these for flow, but before each chapter are sort of chapter headings, such as the generations of Shem, the ancestor of Abram, or one language in the world, the sons of Shem, the sons of Ham, the generations of Noah, stuff like that every so often. I basically see these as optional, but I thought this was interesting because starting with chapter 12, now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. The title is God calls Abram, blesses him with a promise of Christ. Now, Jesus isn't mentioned in this, but with this title, this shows that when God says, I will bless him that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What the King James Bible is trying to prep us for is that this promise will be ultimately realized with the coming of Jesus, part of the prefiguration of Jesus that I spoke of. This is either through ideas, or you could think of them as storylines, plot lines, or another way to look at it, God's plan. Noah served a small part in God's overall plan. But right now we're seeing, for the first time, the trajectory. Save the one piece of humanity that's good, except for Ham, get them to multiply, and then he chooses the ancestors, not of Ham, not of Japheth, but specifically Shem. Take them into a completely new land where they will put down their roots and make a great nation. Remember the Aeneid. On them, I set no limits, space, or time. I have granted them power, empire without end. This is the promise. This is the divine sanction. With that said, chapter 12, verse 4. So, Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. That's nice. He took his nephew with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old, when he departed out of Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. I think we'll stop here for today. I like keeping these half an hour long episodes. It's feeling real comfy. But I also think that it's kind of necessary because sometimes the wording in this book will get extremely dense. 
like the part where it, it explains how Terah had three sons and one of them died, but he also had a daughter who the other one married and he also had a son and he had another son before that and then the dad died and they all moved. Sometimes it's good to just take things in chunks. Anyway, back to God's plan. Connecting from where we left off in the past three episodes, man begins, falls, grows, sort of falls again. The slate is wiped clean, and then the sons of the last righteous man begin to repopulate the earth. Out of the line of one of these, a new nation will be promised, and God will send his son in the future to these people to help save everyone on the earth. What I think is most fascinating about this story, let's just take it on a story basis. Someone brings to me a movie. I have an idea for a movie. We have this all-powerful being. He creates a whole race, but they have very short lives and they make a lot of mistakes. And then the whole story is about how this omnipotent being tries to find the best ones of this race of short-lived fuck-ups and with each generation tries to make them better. That's a great story. I mean, what it really sounds like is A gardener, constant tending, a little bit of culling, but with a broader idea in mind. The rub, though, is that humans are plants that can think. You give them just a little bit, and then they're crawling up on their little tower trying to get into heaven when they're insignificant. I think I loved that story the most because we have the three sons of Noah. He says, this is the stock that we'll use to make the best people on earth. And even in the best of the best of the best, one of them is still a total asshole. And then we see the resulting works of this strain. It's like a virus. The virus metastasized into something like Babel. Whatever was wrong with Ham is the same thing that is wrong with these people who then rise up against God, he has to smack them down. And the other two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, more sons of Ham. It almost makes you feel for God. It's like one of those spy movies where somebody has the information so they get whacked, but then the guy has to go to each person that that guy talked to and whack everybody. It's like we're still pulling up the bad roots of Ham that have just spread everywhere. God's work is never done. The only way to get to some decent people is to keep taking smaller and smaller sample sizes of who you think is going to be able to handle it. Not even Japheth's progeny made the cut. And (laughs) Japheth was right there with Shem doing that backwards leaning blanket move to cover Noah. Remember the rule. There is great art on this. If you listen to this podcast, Google image search Shem and Japheth blanket, and you will see the most ridiculous images of two grown men holding a blanket and walking backwards. What a move. What a complicated move to describe. This book is great. I'm having a great time. That's it for today. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the Nonbeliever Bible Club. The story continues next week. Creepeth on, my creeping things. We'll see you next time.